When I was eight or nine years old, I decided I was going to start reading the Bible. It was on a Sunday morning in Dublin, Indiana. We lived just across the street from the meeting house, alley between us. And I was in my Sunday clothes and ready, so I grabbed my Bible and I sat down in the green vinyl reclining rocking chair there in the living room. And I figured if you're going to start to read something all the way through, you might as well start at the beginning. So I did. Opened my Bible to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. I got as far as Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. And I said, all right, I think I'm all done here. My quest was pretty short-lived. I think we ended it because I left the house and we headed over to the meeting house and I probably got only as far as chapter 1. A little intimidating, a little overwhelming. To be honest, I may not be the only one. I think there's a lot of folks who have never made it past chapter 1 of Genesis, which may be unfortunate because I think Genesis has a lot to teach us, a lot to remind us. Lately, I've been giving Genesis a lot of thought. In fact, I've come to this personal conclusion, and it's this. If all you were ever to read were the first four chapters of Genesis, you would have a comprehensive view of the human condition and God's view toward us and the world. Genesis is more about how we understand ourselves, our world, and trusting God than it is a defense for the creation of the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, to be sure. God created the world, and it's a wonderful part of that first book, but it was never intended just to be a rebuttal of science. In fact, Genesis is more poetry. It's more like a hymn. It's more like a liturgy of sorts that's intended to create in us a sense of worship and trust towards God. And I have gone back to Genesis more and more lately because it it offers us something else, I think, which I'll get to in a little bit. It offers us a different narrative. It offers us a different story to live by and to identify ourselves with. Because in many ways, you and I, the minute we wake up in the morning, the minute we hit the ground, we are giving a multiple number of narratives that we are asked to live our life by. Stories to identify with. Narratives to identify with, to put our faith and trust in. And I go back to Genesis time and time again and say, but there is a different one here that is asking me to identify with. So understanding the book of Genesis begins with understanding when it was written. It was actually written or assembled between 598 B.C., 587 B.C., which is before Christ or before Common Era. Now those dates are hugely important because it's during those 11 years the Israelites were carried or forcibly removed from their homeland, their promised land, and carried off to exile in Babylon. And so while they're in Babylon, they were forced to live under an occupied force by a foreign power, ruled by a foreign government, subjected to the foreign gods. They were strangers in a foreign land. In other words, they are completely in foreign territory, completely with a different narrative. And it was within that time frame the book of Genesis was assembled and it was written. In fact, if you go to Psalm 137, it gives a sense of the emotions and feelings of the Israelites while they were in Babylon. I'll read a portion of it. Psalm 137, verses 1 to 4. Listen to the emotions and the feelings of the Israelites. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down, crying because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres or our harps up in the trees because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said, but how could we possibly sing the Lord's song? 
on foreign soil. So this is the place they were in. They were both physically and spiritually in a foreign land, homesick for their own homeland. In fact, I would say they were displaced and depressed. They had no joy. It was manifested in their inability to sing. And when they were asked to sing, they just hung their instruments up on the trees, and all they could do was cry. No more song in their soil, their soul, no more life in their heart. Emotionally, they were in this foreign territory, and they didn't know what to do or who to turn to. And so even in that little snapshot, we find that we get that way sometimes. Life gets hard. Life loses its joy. We grieve over a past that no longer exists. We grieve over wonderful memories long gone. A place in which we now exist feels so foreign. We feel so lost. We're not even sure that we can sing the hymn when the pastor asks us to stand and turn to the page number. We just say, I can't sing anymore. I have no song in my heart. These words just don't resonate. I would rather just sit and listen. It was in this climate of despair, this climate of disarray that Genesis was written. And think how counterintuitive it was. The Israelites, living in this harsh world with tormentors and joylessness, and in fact, the first verses of Genesis, we read this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the water. And God said, let there be light. And so light appeared, and God saw how good the light was, and God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. And by the way, did you notice, God didn't have to create the darkness. It already existed. All God created was light. And that must have been how the Israelites felt in Babylon. Darkness, chaos, a life without shape or form. And when I hear those words, without shape or form, I think of people who have a life without purpose, a life without a sense of meaning, a life without a sense of hope. Chaotic just in a vacuum, a void. And so this writing of Genesis is this reaffirmation of their faith. It's a reaffirmation for them that God is good and that creation is good. It was a a reaffirmation that regardless of all the darkness and chaos that they were living under at that time, God was working to bring light and order and goodness to the world. Genesis is this reaffirmation of faith that despite the news reports, Despite all the seemingly empirical evidence, despite how formless and void your life feels right now, God is still at work bringing light to our world and creating a world that is good. It is a reaffirmation of faith that God is at work creating. And by the way, if you go to 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul picks up on this language. And he picks up on this idea that God is recreating because he says, when we become When we enter into salvation, he says, we are new creations in Christ. It's the same language. Paul is saying God is constantly creating and recreating. And when we come to faith in Christ, we are part of that new creation. God is creating something good, and that is you and I. Now, there's something else you need to know about the Babylonians. They had some pretty funky creation stories of their own. In one version, there is this power struggle between the gods which had a deity named Marduk to kill. And this deity, Marduk, killed an older goddess named Tiamat. Now, you don't have to take notes on this. This is just for background. After killing her, the goddess's body was torn into two pieces. One half was fashioned into the earth, while the other half became the heavens. Now, the only thing I could think of after I heard about that was try depicting that on a flannel graph in Sunday school. I guarantee you the kids will either not come back or they will be back in droves the next Sunday. Now, a second popular story among the Babylonians was 
full of bloodshed. Human beings were the product of the gods killing each other. And I know this gets a little funky, but in their own mind's eye, it was the blood of the dead gods that became the life source for creating human servants who ultimately would do their bidding on earth. Again, not your typical flannel graph story. Now, why is this important? What does this have to do with Genesis? It's important because it shows how different the Hebrews understood their world and how the book of Genesis was created so that they could be reminded that they were to identify their life with a different story, a different God, a different dream for creation, a different view of humanity. Where the Babylonians' world was created out of violence and fear, the Hebrews, the Hebrew world was created by a God who declared that everything was good and provided this flourishing world that would grow, plant, life, and fruit trees, and God would provide for the needs of everyone and everything and everyone that had breath. As verse 30 reads this, To all wildlife, to all the birds of the sky, and to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for good. And that's what happened. God saw everything He had made, and it was supremely good. This whole Babylonian backstory, this whole Babylonian narrative This view of violence and servitude, it was the prevailing dominant view, and the Israelites were called to live by a different view of the world, one that recognized God as the creator of all that is good, a view of the world in which all were intended to flourish and to be fruitful and to live in harmony together. And this, friends, is why Genesis is so important. Every day, maybe at least for me, but every day, in a sense, we are seduced or at least tempted into identifying and living by a different dominant worldview. A view that says violence is what creates our world. Violence is what makes things happen. Violence is what has to happen to get the upper hand. A view that says only the powerful survive, so you better be the one in power. A view that says the world is scary, it's formless, it's chaotic place, so you better look out for yourself and you better not trust anyone else. And it's a view that says you're on your own, no one is going to provide for you, so you better live for yourself and you better grab all you can. And then the Israelites say, no, that's not the narrative we're going to live by. We're going to live by a different God because we have a different God, a different story. And Genesis offers us this alternative view to identify with and put our faith in. Genesis reminds us that even when life is dark and chaotic, God comes to us and breathes into our life and brings light and goodness into our life. Genesis reminds us that God did not intend our world to be a violent and competitive place driven by scarcity, but a place in which we live in harmony with one another, a place where we recognize the abundance of life that God offers and we trust that God will provide what we need so we don't have to go taking it from others. And Genesis reminds us that ultimately our world is not a scary place to be. On the contrary, it is a good place to be because God created it and God said it is good. Verna Dozier is an author that wrote a little tiny book called The Dream of God, and she writes this, quote, The opposite of faith is not doubt, but fear. Faith implies risk, and I will cast my life on this possibility that God is for me. And I think that's the key. God is for me. God is for you. God is for all of creation, and we all cast our life on this possibility that God is for each one of us us, in some ways, reclaiming our original goodness, that God is for each one of us and created us to be good, and we are good stuff, and God will provide for us in this world. That's often, lately, in my own mind's eye, 
as I've woken up in the morning, I thought, I'm not going to have my day set by the news. I'm not going to have my day set by the paper. I'm not going to have my day set by the pundits. I have set my day by the narrative that says God created this world and it was good. And God provided for the plants and the animals and the trees and the human beings. And God intended this world to flourish. And God intended people to thrive and for there to be harmony. And I look at that and I almost kind of in this rebellious way say, this will be my story. And this will be what I identify with. And anything else that comes along better be better than this, because if it's not, I reject it. This is why Genesis was offered for us. Which brings us to this beautiful moment in Genesis 1, where we read that God created in God's own image, in the divine image, God created them male and female. God created them. Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Now the concept of in the image comes from this time in which kings would, they couldn't be in more place, couldn't be in, 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 in more place than once. And in other words, um, they would place images of themselves around the kingdom so that folks would be reminded of their kingly presence. So, in essence, to be created in the image of God not only conveys our deep dignity and how valuable we are, it reminds us that we are God's, if you will, kingly representatives on earth. We are to be the very reflection of who God is and how we interact with creation. We have been given charge over creation. We are to be God's agents and reflections of God's presence in that role. So, where God brought light to a chaotic world, you and I can bring light to our chaotic and sometimes dark world through who we are and our actions. Where God created a world which all could flourish and thrive, you and I are invited to live in such a way that we help to create a world in which all have the possibility of thriving and flourishing, not just humans, but animals, natures, trees, flowers, and all of creation. Where God created a world and declared it good, you and I are invited, invited to help create a world through our acts of goodness, and then we can step back and we can look and we can celebrate it and declare it good. And this is the kicker. We literally are invited to be co-creators with God. We aren't past passive spectators, but were these active participants in helping to create the kind of world that God intended through our acts of goodness and light. Let me bottom line that. What we do matters, and who we are matters. And every act of goodness, whether small or large, is huge and important and is from God. In fact, I look at Scripture, and I'm just amazed at how that theme gets played out Even Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, that when we become whole, when we become saved, he says that we also are shown that we were created for good works. There's that theme of goodness again. And then in Acts, uh, the apostles talk about simply that Jesus went around doing good. I think good is underrated. I think doing good things and doing good works and bringing goodness to the world is totally underrated. And it needs to be reclaimed, because that's how God started out. That's the narrative. A book recently came out, and the author is making the interview rounds. And in fact, I watched the documentary last night. It's entitled, A World in Disarray. I'm pretty sure that's how the Israelites felt when they were in Babylon. And all their hope had been drained from their soul, and they no longer had any joy. They were living in this world in disarray. That's why... 
They created the book of Genesis to remind them that ultimately God is in control, that God has created a good world, and that amid all the disarrayness of the world, God is present to bring order and harmony, and God will provide. So it may be that our world, maybe your world is in disarray. This disarrayness doesn't have the final word, Godness. Maybe your world feels in disarray because things have changed dramatically and it's different now than it was. Maybe your world feels in disarray because you're in transition. Maybe your world feels in disarray because you feel formless and void and you have no sense of direction, no sense of aim. Maybe all of that. But again, that doesn't have the final word. God does. God always has the final word on our lives. And as in Genesis says, it is a good word. You know, the term Genesis means coming into being or beginning. For Israelites in Babylon, it was the beginning of seeing their present circumstances in a very new way. And for you and I, it can be, if you will, this Genesis of faith, this renewal. A journey in which we don't accept our circumstances or our condition as the final word, but we look to God for that first and last word. And that first word, God is always creating and recreating our lives. And that final word, God says, and it is good. The first word on our life, God is always recreating and creating you and I. And the final word is to you and I, it is always good. So when I think about this, before we take a few moments to reflect, my question for me and my question for you to invite you to think about is, what's the dominant narrative you place your life in? What's the story you invest in? What is the dominant narrative that you put your hope and trust in that defines who you are, that defines your faith, that defines your trust? And maybe a little bit more bottom line is, who ends up being your God? The God of creation, the God of life, the God of goodness. Are the gods of all the dominant narratives we're given each day when we wake up in the morning that says, trust this, believe this, put your hope in this which has nothing to do with God and God's goodness and God's grace and God's creative work in this world.